0: The conference title, Assembled, Under the Word. Uh, I like it. I don't know who came up with it. It's clean. And it's clear insofar as it goes. That said, it raises uh, a number of puzzles, a host of questions as I began to look at, look at it in preparation. Take the word assembled verb, an intransitive verb, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Who are the assembled? Who are the assembled? How'd they get here? I started looking at the other end of the banner, the word. What word are we talking about? Is this the oracular word that we find in a sermon Or are we meant to take it as the inscripturated word, i.e., is this the Bible? Do we have any sense as to what is implied by the content of the word? For that matter, uh, who is speaking the word? And does it matter how it's even delivered? No wonder Ryan, uh, in convening this conference, called us together. ...with the intention of... ...because you can't arrive simply on the basis of taxonomy uh, of a clean definition in the New Testament that uh, doesn't have some room at the edges to have to think your way clear on. Nevertheless, I think it would be good to get a working definition of what exactly preaching is. Secondly, I want to demonstrate from the book of Acts what preaching does. And then finally, I want to dip our toe into the Athenian discourse in Acts 17 in preparation for the second talk, really, just to begin to ask what strategies does Paul employ in Athens that can be applied by all of us, whether we're a preacher or not? So, what is preaching? I hope my definitions are a bit simpler than Don's. <laughs> in fact, I, I, I hope they will be. It's the public announcement of the gospel from the scriptures by one authorized with responsibility for it. That's a provisional shorthand definition. What is preaching? It's the public announcement of the gospel from the scriptures by one who's authorized to have responsibility for it. Let me just unpack it. Public announcement. That's inherent in the, uh, the way in which the dominant New Testament word for preaching is translated. It's from the word keruso. We're going to see it later today in 2 Timothy 4.2 with Alistair's talk where you see the verb preach the word. Now that word Uh, is used some 63 times in the New Testament. And it comes uh, from from the idea of a herald. It's not necessarily a biblical word. Uh, It's just a contemporary word in first century Roman culture. A herald was a preacher. And what he did was preach. Meaning he was sent from a ruling authority to a region and function like the old town crier. He would enter into the town and uh, in that day, because there weren't uh, easy ways to call everybody together, the main uh, place of all the business and transaction, and he would simply stand on a box or otherwise and say, I have a word, I have an announcement, I've come to proclaim a word to you from the king. And It was public. As such, it was oral and completed by way of a monologue. We didn't dialogue on what the king had to say, we listened to what he had to say. This really is where we even get the idea of an ambassador, someone who is sent with a message. It's public in the sense when we think about preaching that we know that it's to go to the ends of the earth. It's that public. It's a universal public proclamation. The definition, a public announcement of the gospel. Of the gospel. The word preach, for instance, in 2 Timothy 4.2, is connected to an object. Preach the word. And without uh, leaning forward into what we'll hear later today, from Alistair. It's just interesting to remember that. The word is the gospel. In Acts 8.4 the same word is used, not with the object of preach the word, but in Philip's understanding there, preach the Christ. So the word is the word of Christ. Or take a look with me if you would, the same word used in Luke 24 and 47. This, of course, is the famous uh, finish of Luke's two-volume work, the first volume, where Jesus, in verse 45, has opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And there he says to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. There's our word. Should be proclaimed in his name, to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You, that is those 12, are witnesses of these things. They they are the ones who are authorized to bring that message. It's a message of the gospel. In other words, it's a message of the death, the resurrection of Christ, and the repentance that's required and the forgiveness that is granted. What is preaching? It's the public announcement of the gospel but we go on it's the public announcement of the gospel from the scriptures we're fond of looking at Romans 1:16 aren't we in regard to what a summary of the gospel is or what it does it's a definition of sorts Romans 1:16 for I'm not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And yet that gospel, the word there, 116, has been used twice previously already in the letter, in the very opening. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel. You'll see it there in verse 1. And then notice how it's connected to the Scriptures, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ the gospel isn't just a message out of thin air it's something that comes to you from the scriptures now the Old Testament scriptures then were pointing to Christ they were also demonstrating the promises that are fulfilled in Christ but in some measure in Romans 1 1 they actually are the pre-proclamation of Christ in that era. I mean, the very word here, where it says it was promised beforehand, is literally, or uh, woodenly, it was pre-proclaimed. It isn't merely that the Old Testament message points to, predicts or Jesus fulfills the promises of, the Old Testament message contains a pre-proclamation of the gospel, which is what Don was doing last night, demonstrating to us that it had been there all along. That is, the very gospel had been there. Take a look at Galatians 3.8. You'll see Paul confirm this. This understanding of the pre-proclamation of the gospel in the Old Testament scriptures Galatians 3, 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. So what is preaching? Well, we're moving along in our understanding. It's the public announcement, inherent within the word itself, of the gospel which brings us to Christ, his death and resurrection and the need for repentance and the offer of forgiveness from the scriptures, by one authorized with the responsibility for it. Think of it in Luke uh, 4. Jesus comes proclaiming the good news. He is the herald. And yet he transfers that responsibility, that heraldic role, to the 12, and he commissions them to now you proclaim. And then Paul himself, in 2 Timothy, will, by way of command, transfer that message and the authority for it from the apostolic age to a post-apostolic age through Timothy, who is to then train others who will have the responsibility in the coming generations. Those are the links in the chain. It doesn't mean that all of us don't testify to the gospel. But when you think of what preaching is in this provisional understanding, it is now, uh, uh, I've defined it with some kind of, uh, with, with a bit of definition. I don't know if you like uh, Tony Horton. You ever do P90 workouts? <laughs> well, I, I need to, we need to do it again, but, but at any rate, at my age... Uh, <laughs> Tony's killing me, but he's got that one little phrase that, that it doesn't take long before we get a little, what, loose in the cage. <laughs> Everyone but Alistair. I don't know how you do it. I'm calling it hereditary, not, uh, heredity, not self-control. <laughs> when we think about preaching, all I want to say at this point is it, we've become a little loose in the cage. It it lacks any real definition that might hold us along the lines that I've just tried to lay it out. Uh, Think of uh, Peter Adam uh, out of Australia, then he begins to describe preaching as a subset of a larger banner that would be a a word ministry. So, So the ministry of the word encompasses lots of things, preaching... One of them. Whereas in our common parlance, we use preaching as the large banner from which anything can fall or be defined as. So your neighbors will say to you, don't preach at me. And you'll think, yeah, I'm a preacher. (laughs) Or they'll say, do you practice what you preach? And you'll say, well, I, I guess I'm a preacher. But in actual fact, when you look at the scriptures, there's there's an element where it's the public proclamation of the gospel from the scriptures by those who have not had hasty hands laid on them for the welfare of the whole. Peter Adam puts it this way. The ministry of the word in the Bible Includes things like the writing and reading of scripture the use of scripture and personal exhortation encouragement or in your personal witness But preaching is best understood as one part of the ministry of the word and It derives its theological character from the biblical basis for all aspects of the ministry of the word in other words the specific activity of preaching And all that it entails in the Bible, including the elements of authority, or even, as you're beginning to work this out for yourself, does it contain restrictions on who does it and who may not engage in it, they draw from a more general concept of word ministry. So what are the implications? Well, hopefully this provides some sense, uh, knowing that most of you are in churches and not in pulpits, of what kind of job description you should be drawing up for the one that you would like to shepherd your family. It ought to be someone who gives themselves to this work. It also gives us a tool by way in which we can begin to evaluate the kinds of churches that we want to be raising ourselves in and our Families am I in a place where they give themselves to the public announcement of the gospel from the scriptures The restrictions be able to come in who's able to do this Who's not? All of these things begin to be worked out and as Alistair told us last night the role of the preacher in these sessions is not to do all the heavy lifting for you but to simply set you on your way. Enough, then, for what is preaching. What does preaching do? Open to the book of Acts. Just a cursory run-through tour of the sermonic material in the book of Acts. Let's glance, just briefly, at those elements of uh, discourse, those sections that are retelling, almost reprinting, those first early sermons. Take a look at the first one, it's right there in chapter two. The substance of the preaching comes from Peter, who's certainly the one that Jesus has given this responsibility to, along with the twelve, and it's his Pentecost sermon. You have his scripture texts in front of you. You get a sense of his actual exegesis, the way in which he applies it. But the question we're concerned with now is what does it do? I want to show you that it does three things. Look at verse 37. It convicts the heart. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Preaching... Convicts the heart. It actually aims at the heart. But by nature, God's word, when publicly proclaimed, cuts to the very core and the will of humanity. For now we are confronted head on, face to face, with the word of God, the will of God, and our way in his world. It convicts. But look at verse 41. It does more than that. It converts. So, those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, the word they received uh, is an interesting word. If you look down in verse 44, uh, you'll see the connection that those who received the word are those who believed. And for Luke, uh, this is an important uh, distinction. For Luke, he uses the word receive. Uh, Almost synonymously at times with believe it isn't as just we listened No, they they actually were converted Uh, This happens in In uh, in in Luke throughout I just want to show you even back in uh, his first volume volume one just look at Luke 9 50 and 51 That turning point In the gospel, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, here it is, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that they didn't like him or didn't want to sit down with him. It meant that they rejected his message because his message was moving him to death. And when his disciples saw it, They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You know, they're they're not believing you. But look across the column, chapter 10, verse 8. Whenever you enter a town, Jesus says, and they receive you, that doesn't mean merely let you in the door, like a good E.E. visit would have done years ago. Eat what's set before you, heal the sick, say to them the kingdom of God has come near to you, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, implication they don't believe you well then you leave that place you go on so what does this first sermon do of Peter back in Acts chapter 2 it convicts the heart it converts people into a new way of life in other words they are regenerate that heart of stone actually it's changed heart of flesh what the Christian community needs to keep coming back to because it doesn't take long for my heart to grow cold, calloused, to realize that the Holy Spirit is alive within me and needs to be flourishing because I've been born again. A couple weeks ago I stood in Texas six feet above the bones of Keith Green country cemetery he he ministered to me in in unique ways early back in the 70s when I subscribed to the last days newsletter (laughs) my heart is hard My prayers are cold oh I know how it ought to be alive to you and dead to me what can be done With an old heart like mine. Soften it up with oil and wine. When when the preaching of the word goes into those streets in Jerusalem on Pentecost Sunday. The new covenant came. It it brings community. It convicts. It converts. It establishes community. Everybody's looking for community today. Well, look at verses 42 to 47. The preaching of the word is what creates not only Christian life, but community. They devote themselves to one another. You know, in Chicago, uh, we struggle with race, (laughs) and it wasn't too long ago. I live on the south side, and my congregation is uh, multi-ethnic, and uh, we're we're, we're in it. (laughs) We're in it together because we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, about 65% white, 25% black, 10% Asian, and when the streets are filled, and believe me, they will be filled again. The country is longing for community, for, for the conversation, for getting to the same table. And uh, the march was scheduled for Chicago on a Sunday afternoon, same time we had scheduled a family dinner. I called about three of my African-American pastor friends on the south side and said, what do I do? Do we, do we, do we take to the street to demonstrate The atrocities of what's happening and they for various reasons felt that in my situation it would be best if we didn't and they were heartened especially when they knew that our plan was already to have a church dinner that day I went to dinner I went to church I I, I sat down at the table I I was at what the world longs for it won't come through legislation As great as the atrocities are, the gospel is our hope. And that's what happened. Well, I'm spending too long on that. The second one, we'll pick up speed. Peter in the temple. There's this sermon, verses 12 to 26. And there you begin to see shortly after what happens after he preaches conflict arises they uh... they get uh, in trouble with the magistrates of the religious folks they got to be called before the council verse two of chapter four they were greatly annoyed The proclaiming, the preaching, and Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them. They put them in custody. But there was also some conversion, and then you realize that by the end of chapter 4, you've got another summary statement of community in verses 33 to 37. So when the preaching of the word goes out, it convicts. But this time, the emphasis is not on conversion and the community established. The emphasis is on conviction leading to conflict and the implication for the Christian community. Stephen's sermon, chapter 7. There's this sermon, verses 1 through 53. What does preaching do? Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's conflict, in case you haven't noticed it. That's escalated conflict. It actually ends in killing. This is religious zealotry gone wrong. The persecution of the Christian faith. No mention of conversion there. Although you've got that one little line, don't you? That beautifully narrated element of foreshadowing. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. (laughs) A precursor to conversion. What happens at that point in 8.1 is an expulsion. Saul approved his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church. And they're scattered throughout all the regions. So the preaching of the gospel led to persecution which led to the expulsion which actually led to the expansion of the gospel. For in verse 4 now those who were scattered went about preaching the word and then we see Philip himself proclaiming in Samaria the Christ. That's What happens when people preach? Oh, to see from the lens of above. So instructive for our contemporary situation. Then you've got Peter at Cornelius' house, back in chapter 10, I believe, and you can get all the way, what does preaching do? Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among them, the circumcised who had come down, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on Gentiles. Those who are outside the promises are now within the very people of God. You'll see the same thing put forward again when he reports back to the church in chapter 11 verse 18 when they heard these things they fell silent they glorified God then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life and then verse 19 now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who were coming on to Antioch they spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord was with them And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. That is what's happening. If you begin to read Acts, you're beginning to see what preaching does. It convicts all who hear. Some unto agitated, enraged conflict. Others unto eternal life and conversion. You could trace it out. Paul then begins this transition in the book. You'll see his sermon at Antioch Pisidia. There's his text. Chapter 13, verses 16 to 41. But what does preaching do? Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told the next Sabbath. It actually begins to build curiosity in some. Verse 43, it converts. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. It doesn't mean they just wanted to to get a selfie with him. No, they were with him. They believed his message. (laughs) Oh, for that kind of a following but that wasn't all there's conflict verse 44 the next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word but when the Jews saw the crowd they were filled with jealousy began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him you're gonna see the same thing all the way through acts I think I should probably just stop for the sake of time but when he gets to Iconium in 14:1, they go in and a great number of Jews and Greeks believe, verse 1, but unbelieving Jews stir up people, verse 2. When you get to Philippi in chapter 16, Lydia is converted, and yet Paul is incarcerated. When you get to Thessalonica in chapter 17, in verses 2 to 5, you see that unusual situation where the emphasis really begins to come uh, on, on the persecution and All of his reasoning some believing some persuading and yet many verse 5 jealous wicked men forming mobs setting the city in an uproar you get to Berea well they're more noble again we get a little glimpse that at times it's just a wonderful work going on and not a lot not a lot of headwind that's the rare that's the rare city You can take them all the way to Athens, which we will later today, verses 32 to 34. You'll see the the mockery that comes, the conversion that comes. You can go to Corinth. You can see that he's actually afraid to preach because he's he's afraid of getting beat again physically. And He gets a dream, a vision, says, look, you're going to be okay here. i got some good things going on here get to Ephesus it's exactly the same you get to Rome look the way the book ends let's get there so we can get on to this next point but I'm just trying to let you see what preaching does because once you see what it does well we'll see the implications in a moment 28 verses 23 and 24 here you are from beginning to end this is the the corpus of Acts, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him and his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. What are the implications? One, when you begin to see what preaching does, you should be re-energized, To go back to your church with a decided commitment to the explication of the scriptures. To preaching. Why? Because by it, God's people are saved. Preaching must be done because conversion comes from it. The relationship of preaching to conversion is profound. I mean, think of it this way. Preaching to conversion is what breath is to to speech. Um, It's what what planting a seed is to bearing fruit. Want fruit? Got to plant seeds. No seeds, no fruit. No preaching, no conversions. If you've ever traveled by a car or a train or a boat or a plane, it is what gas is to going. That's that's the dynamic relationship. Let me put it in as most intimate terms as I can, and yet I think it's the terms that capture what really takes place spiritually. The relationship to preaching to conversion is more intimate than what making love is to making life. You are birthed, says Peter, by the word. Oh, how this ought to fill our sails. Boy, what a day. What a day when soft evangelicalism uh, continues to move away from the simple, raw, Exposure to the Word of God. We spend all of our time, well not all, but there's, we spend so much time trying to figure out how we can change this world and wondering why nobody believes. <laughs> and how many of us actually put this Bible and an explanation of it between us and the relationships around us? We ought to be re-energizing I mean, this was Paul. Paul was the most missionally-minded man on the planet. You cannot read 2 Timothy and not realize that he endures all things for the sake of the elect. (laughs) Or when he gets to the very end of the gospel and he realizes that he's been delivered from the lion so that chapter 4, 17 or so, so that the word might go to all the Gentiles, which actually indicates why he has the unusual opening in 2 Timothy 1.1 that he has the gospel in accordance with the promise of life. Paul wants life going forth, and for that reason, he says, Timothy, preach the word. Re-energized in the southwest region on the gospel, from the scriptures, for the conversion of people who are members of God's family, just not yet. It ought to reorder, not merely re-energize us, it ought to reorder our tactics for personal work of gospel witness. Most of you are not preachers. You say, thank God. (laughs) Can't do what you guys do, and in your mind, I know what you say. I got no desire to. But this ought to reorder all tactics. I mean, we ought to reorder all things you do in the church, in your community, around this reality. You ought to be putting the word of God between you and the relationship in your neighborhood or in your family. You ought to be exposing people to this. Let me put it this way. You're not going to win anyone to Christ by hanging out with them at some Tex-Mex bar. Well, I don't know. Is Tex-Mex good or bad here? I don't know. I always forget. I'm from Chicago. Is it bad? It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Where do you like to hang out? You know, we've got all kinds of Christians trying to be missional. Spending like 18 gazillion hours with their friends and never one mention of their relationship with Christ or asking them a simple question, would you ever be interested in reading the gospel of Mark with me? You know, we're walking around afraid to tell anyone what we believe. It's like we had a third arm this way my wife does it. Like we've tucked it into our coat all the while and maybe after five years we'll say, hey, look, I I need to tell you now that you know me well, I I have a third arm. (laughs) What, 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 What is that? Let's be adults. Be an adult, treat people like an adult. Look, your family member, your colleague, your work member in the eye, it's a simple thing. You know, I'm a Christian. I know there's a lot that goes with that, but, well, that's what I am. Jesus has done something for me. You know, would you ever be interested in reading the Gospel of Mark and just get together for breakfast eight weeks? Love to do it if you have any interest. You know that the polls actually show that over 60% of the people would do it if you asked them as an individual, whereas if you asked them to go to church with you, whoa. Oh. See this assembly, the assembly of the people of God, is usually a later step on the continuum, re-energized, reordered, and let me say this: it ought to reshape our expectation. Uh, let, let me let me see if I can explain it. You say, I'll put this right down there where you can get it. There is no way forward without marginalization. No way. The gospel will not go forward without you being marginalized. So if you want the gospel to go forward, you've got to come to grips with marginalization. Because when the gospel goes forth, conflict ensues. When conflict ensues, persecution comes. Not from all, but this idea that somehow we're going to be able to be missional and attractional and still have everybody thinking well of us is ridiculous. So it ought to reshape. You've got to tell your kids this if you got kids. It's not a question of, uh, you know, where we're heading. We're there. I just returned a couple weeks ago from Cuba. Met a pastor. He had a professional job. He was a university professor. His wife was a medical doctor. They were the upper echelon in that society. You're talking education government, or military, he became a Christian as an adult, mid-90s. I said, well, what happened then? He goes, well, I opened a Bible study in my my living room. I said, what happened then? He goes, well, I got fired. They took my university post away. They revoked my wife's medical practice. We went from being, uh, you know, the upper echelon to common labor. They took our land away. If our chickens produced 20 eggs, they came, took sixteen. I, I live by way of subsistence now. Economic, vocational, whatever it's gonna be, it's all coming. It, it's all it's not coming. It's all here. Wake up, smell the coffee. A missionally minded church by nature will experience marginalization and expulsion and in God's plan for the expansion well that's what the gospel does one more question in the time that remains I just want to say a couple of things that probably comes out of that uh, as we kind of move toward what I'm going to say from the Athenian discourse next time, Paul in Athens, X 17. I just want to say a couple of words by way of setting, the setting we find ourselves in, and some strategies that I think all of us can adopt, whether we are preachers or not. There are three uh, clear parallels regarding the setting of Athens and the setting in Albuquerque. Wow, don't you like that assonance? I do. (laughs) (laughs) The two uh, parallel in this way. People increasingly lack the theological categories that would have given a backdrop to a simple explication of the scripture that called them back to things they should have known. I.e. what Don did last night, where Jesus is speaking parables to a primarily Jewish audience, which actually was a way of indicating known categories that were already back in the Old Testament that they would make a connection to. Today, we live in a culture that is increasingly without any categories of the Christian faith. So it's like this. I'm preaching downtown to business people in Chicago, and and I've got 90 business people there, and about half of them are Christians, half of them are not. They're being brought by their friends. And I get to the passage in Mark where Peter gives his denial uh, of Christ, and, and I encourage the people, you know, come back next week and, and a businesswoman in her 50s comes to me fear stricken after the 22 minute talk and grabs me and says, you didn't tell us what happened to Peter. I said, what are you talking about? She, you didn't tell us what happened to Peter. I said, well, uh, come back next week. We'll, we'll, we'll pick it up. <laughs> She's like, no, I, I can't wait till next week. Does, does he does he end up rejecting Jesus entirely? See, so she'd been following along. And then it dawned on me, this lady in her 50s, in a major urban city, does not know what happened to Peter. Never, no, no, no. I mean, with all the churches around, St. Peter's this and St. Peter that. I mean, <laughs> <is this? laughs> no category. I said, well, why don't you come back next week, but I'll just give you a little primer, because I said, you know, you've got to be able to go back to work and do your job. He- he's going to be okay. <laughs> she said, okay, good. <laughs> a few months ago, sitting in my living room, the guy that was working in a local school, got to meet him, he had to talk, invite him to our house, a little study, going through Daniel. You get to like uh, chapter 3, you know, all these famous stories and the guys in the thing. And he's like, afterwards, I said, well, so what do you think? he goes, wow, this is unbelievable. I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, I can't wait till next week. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm like, really? Don't you know that Daniel in the lion's den is coming up? No. No categories. In that way, our, our, our world in Albuquerque is increasingly like the world of Athens. I mean, there are two, uh, two things that you can see in Paul's preaching. Look at Acts 17, 18. Look, look at the way they thought about Paul's preaching. Some of them said, verse 17, what does this babbler wish to say? Now it's a compound word, two words brought together, It'd be like a seed picker. It'd be like a guy who, he gets a couple ideas over here, Got a couple ideas over there. He tries to put them together and do synthesis, but Paul doesn't do synthesis very well. Whatever he's preaching to us has no real coherence. I'm just like, you know, you don't have alleys here, but in my alley, we got, we got garbage pickers they are through the alley all day, every day, grabbing something out of this bin, something out of that bin, getting along with their day. That's what they thought Paul's preaching was like, because they had no categories to understand it. It didn't feel coherent. The other thing there is they call him one that was a preacher, verse 17, of foreign divinities. Now now the word foreign there is really interesting. Um, That that what Paul was talking about was something that was unfamiliar. I mean, these are people that talked about these things all the time. But whatever he was saying, they were not familiar with. The God that he was presenting in a culture that had all kinds of gods was unique. He, He wasn't... His God was not on their pantheon, and that, in fact, is probably why they tug on his coat and ask him to come and present himself at the Areopagus to the civil leaders who are charged with what kind of religious activity and gods do we have around here, and will his God be permitted in this place, or do we tell him to move on and go down the line? In other words, his message in the Athenian discourse is partially, you know, from Paul's perspective, because you know who he is, evangelistic, but from their perspective, it's simply, uh, what are you telling us, and does that have a, a place in the way in which we can think about life here together? But those two phrases, babbler, preacher of foreign divinities, deities... Is an indication that they lacked theological categories, and the same is true for you because when you say to somebody, Wow, the resurrection changes everything, (laughs) they look at you like, What are you talking about? The resurrection changes everything. I got no category for that. What time's lunch? Not only did they lack categories, but look, it was a city. It was the polis. He was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that city was full of idols. I don't want to make more of this than we should, but great cities are economic engines. Great cities are educational powerhouses. Great cities have a a culturally eclectic feel to them. Athens was, in one sense, the great city upon which all great cities should be measured. Not Rome, Athens. Athens is the great city in civilization. This is the native city to Socrates and Plato. This is the adopted home of Aristotle, Epicurus, Zeno. I mean, this this is where you're going to find the Parthenon, the Agora, the Areopagus, all the temples. I I haven't been there yet, and I want to go. Maybe there's something here even later today for us because we have these things in common. The categories, the city itself, the citizenry. It was diverse. 1717, there were monotheists. Notice, Jews and devout persons, God-fearers. There were monotheists there. Pluralists abounded in Athens. The agora lets you know that we are now to the place of business, commerce, law courts, magistrates, working-class, the mints. You had the cultural elites there, the Epicureans, the Stoics. I mean, if you, if you were an Epicurean, you actually, the Athenian ideal was that somehow life consisted more than merely meeting your base pleasures of sex and food. The Athenians actually were much higher in their range, their aspiration, than Americans. Because we feed We're bottom feeders at the lowest level. The the Athenian aspiration was that there's got to be more in life than merely military success or material success or pleasure. So they began to live for the life of the mind and for all of those things. The Stoics themselves, they were disciplined. They were rigorous. They were very un-American, but they were productively engaged in civil society. Those people are there. Well, what do we have to learn, then, if we have that setting in common? Three minutes, let me give you three things. Notice Paul's strategy. What did he employ? He, he didn't merely restrict himself to that public gathering, that initial definition of preaching. He had versatility. He had a lot of ways he went about gospel work. preaching. To the gathered on the Lord's day was primary. But he had other avenues. He was involved in what I call the personal work of gospel witness. And as he was, so you can be. Look at the three words. You're going to see them. Well, the one word comes in 1717. So he reasoned in the synagogue. But that word actually comes all the way back earlier in seventeen two. Had a comment on what his practice was in Thessalonica: three words here. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving. Those are the three strategies: reasoning, explaining, proving. Reasoning. Uh, just think of it. You'll, you'll hear. You'll hear what we come up with when I give you the, the Greek word dialegomai. Dialogue. Reasoning. Dialogue. He, he found ways to be in conversation, as should you. Part of our problem in Gospel Witness is we're not in conversation. We don't actually talk to people about these things. We might pray for them and wait for them, but we don't actually employ the strategy of talking to them. Well, That's what he did, and that's what we ought to be. In formal settings, all over Albuquerque, it should be, there should be a host of conversations on the gospel. Secondly, he explained to them. This is a word, really, that Don used last night when he talked about opening, how parables open up your eyes. That's really what the word is. This is a word that has a sense of physicality to it. To explain something would be like to open the door. And what Paul does is he takes this physicality kind of word and with, with figurative sense, says that's, that's what I'm doing when I'm talking with people. I'm trying to open their mind up. I'm trying to allow them to actually see something from a different perspective. I mean, it's used eight times in the New Testament, seven of which are in Luke. And one of them is that time where Jesus was explaining to his disciples in verse 24, he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. In other words, explaining is actually walking some things out for people. Third, and finally, and with it we finish. Proving. This is a complicated word. Uh, Let me just show you an instance of it in 1634. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. To set, to place, to put something before someone where they can see it. That's what Paul did informally in conversation. First of all, he was in conversation, dialogue. Secondly, he was opening their mind to things that maybe they'd never even heard of before and speaking with them on that. And then he was proving things. He was setting it before them where they could almost look at it, walk around it, test it, Berean-like. Is that really what God is doing in the world? Did he set it before them. These are all the things that Paul does. And with that sense, then, there's an elasticity. Preaching to be assembled under the word is to find our ways as the family of God routinely under the public announcement of the gospel from the scriptures by those who have been vested with that responsibility with a knowledge of what it does, which ought to re-energize us on the Word, reorder our very lives around those realities, and reshape our expectation of what's coming. And then finally, we ought to realize that everybody has a part to play. And those are the ways you can play it. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this session together. uh, Use it. To strengthen this region of the country, as a result of today, may there be 700 conversations on the gospel before Sunday, as we apply it in Christ's name, amen.